Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. The emotional lives of teens, it's complex. Dr. Lisa Damore is here to help us understand. This is the On Voice Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Thank you for being our listeners, and thank you for supporting our sponsors. If a boy doesn't feel that he has permission to let people know he's hurting, it's a good bet that he will discharge his unwanted emotions by acting out. That one sentence by Dr. Lisa Damore in her latest book, The Emotional Lives of Teens, explains so much. Boys' behavior at school, at home, door slamming, name calling, rule breaking, neighborhood fights that escalate into violence. I have long admired Dr. Damore and her work her potted plant approach to parenting teens helped me stay connected with my boys throughout their teen years. I just wish she'd published the emotional lives of teens about 15 years sooner because I think it would have saved me a lot of heartache. Lisa, it is a pleasure to welcome you to On Boys Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I was so thrilled. I expected to like your book. I expected that your book was going to be packed full. I was absolutely thrilled when I realized that chapter two is gender and emotion. And as somebody who recently published a book with a subtitle about, you know, how the world misunderstands males, uh, that acknowledgement that gender impacts emotional experiences and expression, and that we don't necessarily uh, think about that, I thought is so huge. Tell us why that is chapter two in your book. Um, so one reason is that it is such a huge force in terms of how emotion is expressed and maybe even in terms of how emotions are experienced. You know, that's something that I think is worth um, trying to unpack a little bit. But another reason, and I think this is important, my two previous commercial books centered on girls. Um, I wrote a book called Untangled and a book called Under Pressure. And I've heard repeatedly, and I believe this to be true, 80% of those books applies to kids of all genders. You know, the, the, the central lessons are really, you know, kind of very universal. Um, but I will say it felt, especially given that I've had such a deep bench in girls, it felt to me really important um, in some ways to also establish my knowledge base across genders and to really um, think about kids who are coming at this from a very different, you know, wide variety of spectrums. And it is so governing. If we think about like the social forces, the identity forces that govern emotion, gender is number one, number one, number one. You know, you mentioned um, definitely gender influences emotional expression. We're learning more about how it may influence emotional experience and unpacking that. And then the other thing that I've realized, and Janet, I know you've seen, Lisa, I'm sure you have as well, is gender affects our perceptions of and our expectations of others as well. So there is sort of this um, collective idea. People don't think of teen boys as emotional. Mm. You, you, you take that descriptor and it tends to be applied to teenage girls. And that's a mistake right there. Yeah, because they're humans. Right? <laughs> and humans come with emotions. Absolutely. Yeah. But our culture has sent very clear and very strong messages to boys that they're not supposed to be, and I'm using finger quotes, emotional, or that being emotional, again with finger quotes, is a girl thing to do. And, you know, it's so interesting as you look at gender and emotion and boys in particular, 
you know, there's so many ways in our culture that girls get the short end of the stick, right? I mean, there's so many ways in which they struggle. On the emotion stuff, the boys are absolutely cornered and given so little room to work. And the way I think about it and the way I wrote about it in the book is like, girls actually enjoy a very wide emotional highway with many lanes. You know, mm-hmm. they can be sad, they can be anxious. Turns out they can also be angry unless they're black, in which case they're more likely to get in more trouble, you know, like, but mm-hmm. that there's a lot of latitude to feel a wide range of emotions. And boys are given a two-lane highway in terms of what is considered acceptable in the culture. They can either be angry or they can take pleasure at someone else's expense. Those are the choices. And it's really awful for the boys and also awful for everybody else, right? It's not mm-hmm. good for anybody that this is the highway that we give or the the two na- narrow two-lane road that boys are given. And it's so awful for parents right now, especially female parents. Uh, and obviously that's the lens that I come at this from, as do most of our listeners, if we're being real, because we have this deep desire, like we want to do better for our boys. We don't want them to only be angry or to only take pain in somebody else's, or excuse me, to take pleasure in somebody else's pain. So we are almost hyper alert for those things. And yet we haven't expanded the highway. So no wonder we keep crashing into our boys and they crash into us and frustration all around. Yeah. You know, and it's so, you know, thinking about who your listeners are and how often it is moms in heterosexual houses who are trying to, you know, do the emotional work and get people mm-hmm. talking about feelings. Um, I will say one of the major takeaways for me in writing this book, you know, you always have insights, you learn new things while you're writing, is I started to put together, I put together for the first time, the fact that by fourth or fifth grade, Boys really do kind of get the memo that feelings are a girl thing and guys are tough and invulnerable. Girls are the ones who have feelings. And I put that research together with the research showing that so often the emotional work is done at home by moms mm-hmm. when there's a mom. And I was like, uh-oh, here's the problem. If that's how this is going down, if the only person in a household who's asking about feelings, talking about feelings, interested in feelings is female it unwittingly reinforces exactly the thing we are trying to work against, which is that feelings are a girl thing. And so for me, the the huge takeaway from that section of the book is if we want boys to talk about feelings, the men in their lives Mm -hmm. need to do this work. The men need to be asking about their feelings and men need to be talking about their own feelings. This cannot just be treated as women's work. Mm -hmm. Listeners, you should see us. Jen and I are just like, uh-huh, nodding, nodding. Yes, 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 yes to all of this. And Jen and I have talked about this before of how we are expecting those men to do this work. And yet they weren't raised to do this work. It's crazy it's making. It's so hard for the dads who do want to show up. I really believe that they want to show up. and. There's mom, there's the wife going, honey, you need to do this. And he's going, I don't, I don't know how to do this. I don't even know what I feel. How can I do that for my boy? It's so true, right? I mean, you can't teach what you don't know. If the fluency isn't there, you can't use it to cultivate the language in somebody else. It's a real issue. You know, the beautiful thing though, is that having kids loving your children motivates you in a way nothing else does. I have learned so many things that I didn't know before I had children. And some of it's relatively minute, stupid detail stuff that I just, I know a lot more about fish and cars now, Lisa, than (laughs) I did before I had these children. Yep. Yep. (laughs) You know, so that's some of it. And some of it is things that I realized to do right by them. I need to work on this so we can we can harness that and it's still a fine line for everybody to walk because I think you're right though. I think you're right. Yeah. You'll yeah. do stuff for your kids. You wouldn't do Absolutely. under other conditions. And I think, you know, giving the men in their lives the benefit of the doubt that they will step up in this yes. way. Yes. Yes. Let's circle back. Cause I have a feeling our listeners would love to dive into four boys, how, 
our emotions experienced Mm -hmm. that's different than girls that's different than when we were in fourth fifth sixth grade yeah um i think that at the most core level boys experience emotions just like people of all genders do right they have every feeling they feel sad they feel nervous they feel worried they feel excited they feel it all i think one layer up from that is a sense of whether or not it's allowed. They're allowed mm-hmm. to feel those things. So I think they experience the emotion and it may in just a you know a quick flash become that's not okay or I feel ashamed of having that feeling. Um and and I think that that's the piece that we're trying to like really excavate, you know, which is that there's been such strong messaging from the culture that um you're a crybaby. Or, you know, that's the nicest word that's probably going to get thrown around on the playground. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a very developed and extraordinarily harsh, often very homophobic language or, you know, misogynistic language that um, boys police each other like fiends around the expression of vulnerability. And I really, I tried to be very realistic about that in this book. Like, I really, you know, I, I, you know, I think you got to be a psychologist who operates in the world as it really is. Like that's it, yes. whatever sounds good in your office isn't going to be helpful yeah. to people if it doesn't actually work. And so I think, I, you know, I tell a story about a dear friend whose son was there when another kid started crying, and it was in the fifth grade. And the first reaction the son had when unpacking it for his mom was like he was worried about like how much heat that kid was about to take for mm. acting that way, right? And and I love the way my friend was able to just think with him about it and talk about it, but didn't sort of default to what we want to be true, but that's not true of being like, you know, it's totally okay. And there will you should absolutely share whatever you want. There's it's the right thing to do. Okay. It may be the right thing to do. There are repercussions that are very real for boys. And if we are not talking about those, accounting for those, asking boys how they want to deal with those, asking boys if there is a way to share a feeling or to stick up for a kid who's sharing a feeling, you got to work with the realities here. Yes. Yes. And you know, that boy saying that, that being his, his first expressed concern, that's empathy. Yes. That is a boy who has deep compassion for his friend and who fully understands this world that they're living in. And that is a piece that I think we adults, parents and educators kind of too often miss because it's, yeah, we can sit here and say, yes, all humans should be free to express these emotions but that our boys are living in culture right now. Yeah. And they need to do what they need to do to survive in that culture. And I'm so glad you use the word survive. I mean, because I think again, like in our gentle offices and our, you know, our our wishes in our worlds, right? Like, I mean, and this like, but I have to tell you, like, I care for kids clinically. They're still playing smear the queer. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and and that is so offensive and so out of line and so wrong. That is the reality the kids are living with on the playground. Boys are living with on the playground. And so then, okay, so what do we do about that? What do we do about that? Right. Because this oh, yeah. is something that comes up with with parents that I talk with, Janet, you as well, whether it's parents concerned about their son's interactions with other boys and how they talk to each other, how they interact. Sometimes it's brother-brother stuff. And I, I try and help people understand, like, they're trying to survive in this culture. And our culture is changing. It is not changed. What do you say to parents, uh, you know, and teachers, other caring adults who are trying to help children grow emotionally and survive? So I think while being realistic, Mm -hmm. we can set some standards. And I think that there are things that we can say that should be set in homes. Like, number one, your mouth should never be the place where those words live. Like you are not allowed to call anyone, any name that is meant to be derogatory and, you know, top of the list, right? Like the most likely, you know, are homophobic slurs, misogynistic slurs. Like that is a red line 
those words do not ever come out of your mouth. Like, I think it's really important to say that. Okay. Does this magically mean your kid is never going to do it? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Does it significantly reduce the likelihood? Yes. I think it does. We I have agree with you. Research yeah. showing. Okay. So that's, I think, the first place to start is like you just say, like, this is totally unacceptable. This is totally unacceptable. And then I think what we should do, and I am actually surprised I'm going to take it here because I feel like it goes here too often. Let's look at this through the lens of bullying because it really is about the abuse of power. And the reason I, I said I'm surprised I'm taking it there is I think too often we talk about bullying when we really should just be talking about conflict, You know that they're, mm-hmm. they're two very different mm-hmm. things. But what I like about moving into the realm of bullying is that I think that the rules that we can actually say to all kids of all genders is you know using terms like that is bullying, right? It's a wrong thing to do. When you witness bullying, not if you, when you witness mm-hmm. bullying, you must, must, must do one of three things. Either you need to tell an adult what's happening. Okay, this is probably a low likelihood item. Or you need to extend protection to the kid on the receiving end, which might be as subtle as saying, yeah, guys, let's, you know, let's switch up teams. Like, come on over on my team. Like, whatever it is, like, just do something elegant that covers that kid, does not leave that kid hanging on their own. Or you need to tell the kid who's bullying to stop. You can do more than one of those, mm-hmm. but at least one of those is a non-negotiable. And again, I really like giving kids choices because they know the dynamics in the moment. We do not know the dynamics in the moment. They yep. know that if they tell, they may be up against a kid. If they tell him to cut it out, the ramifications will be so brutal that they are not prepared for those then that can't be the only option we give kids. Mm-hmm. But I do think we can start to say, okay, these this this behavior and language is unacceptable. You are never to do it. And when you witness it, these are my expectations. I feel like it's also helpful then for us as the adults to hold this uh, reality in our heads and realize they will not get this right 100% of the time. And that's okay. They don't have to get it right all of the time to become decent people. No, exactly. I love that you're saying that. And, you know, back to the, your use of the word survival. Mm-hmm. What I think we can never lose sight of as adults, and this applies across genders, but it's very specific in the way we're talking about boys and the transactions that go on among them. Adolescents are going through a period where they need to belong to a pack. And it is tied to ancient and visceral and caveman-like or even animal, you know, need to belong out of like literally sheer survival. And adolescents are in this juncture where your pack can't be your family all the time anymore. Like it really can't. You got to find age mates. And so when I think about like, what is the, like the scariest thing like what's a kid's horror movie of all horror movies being isolated yes Mm -hmm. and we have to remember that like as adults we may be like you know i love being alone right (laughs) whatever great rock on this is not a survival question for you for kids it is yes and i know i can just imagine every single listener has that moment in middle school where they were hanging out to drive by themselves and just tapping back into that moment. Well, I can describe mine like I, you know, I can go back there so fast and feel those feelings. And it can be helpful to recall that and know your son may go through that at some point and add in social media, add in all the other things that we didn't have to deal with. And it's huge and dangerous and loaded and fraught. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, like, if we want to help kids, we actually then have to grapple with the realities they're up against. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. As much as we don't like them. For years, I used to say, and I'm going to switch, I can add on a layer. I used to say, you can't parent for the social life you wish your kid had. You have to parent for the social life they do have. You know, like people wish their kid didn't go to parties where they're drinking. But if your kid is Mm -hmm. going to parties where they're drinking, like you actually have to parent for that. And it's the same on this. Like you, we can't parent for our fantasy 
of what a playground of a bunch of boys might look like. Mm -hmm. We have to parent for the reality. Absolutely. And this is where as a parent of four boys, most of whom are now done with their teenage years, I still have my youngest is 17, Lisa. Um, But you know what? Him being 17 and having watched three other siblings go through, it's been much smoother. Of course, I say that who knows what happens next week before this goes live. Quick pause here for messages from our sponsors. And when we come back, the importance of home. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about Byheart Baby Formula. Byheart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S. made infant formula to use organic grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time. Your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A.com slash ONBOYS. Winona, menopause care made easy. We can have, as you said, expectations, especially in our home. This is where our homes are very powerful places of learning because we can create and control expectations at home better than we can out in the playground. And boys do figure out, some of you have heard the term code switching. Right. And it's, you know, for instance, um, the the language that uh, some families speak at home and in the neighborhood is different than what they speak at work. And people can fluently move back and forth. Boys do this, too. The way a, a teenage boy is with his peers 
may be very different than how he is at home and with family. And that's actually, Lisa, is that, that healthy? I think it can be healthy. It's absolutely healthy. It's also survival, right? And and yeah. I think, you know, it's somebody as you're talking, Jennifer, you know what I'm reminded of? This is such a weird, like, I'm reminded of being a high schooler myself. I graduated from high school in 1988, you know, so sort of like that era. And being in someone's basement, and they were we were watching Porky's. Do you remember that movie? Oh, it was yes. like disgusting. <laughs> it was a horrible, totally offensive, like completely wrong movie in every way. And even in the eighties, we sort of knew that. Oh, we knew it. And guess what? I was totally watching it. But I was watching and thinking, like, oh my god, my parents would lose their minds if they knew I was watching it. All right, I think we have to remember things like that that we did as teenagers because it cannot be that the standard is that your kid stands up and says, I will not watch Porky's, I'm leaving, right? Like that's (laughs) never going to happen, right? Just as your kid's never going to be like, you may not use that word in front of me. Like like, that's a very unlikely thing. But don't have it be a nothing that your kid's like, oh my God, that kid is using a word that if my parents heard me use it, I would be like grounded till I was 35. That is what we can hope for. I think that is what we can achieve. And that's not nothing, right? That is not And that is nothing. also something, your home, your vehicle, you can set the rules. There were certain words that have my boys ever used them. Absolutely. Yes, we know. In, Let's be realistic. Absolutely. But around me, they know they cannot. And they also know that if their friends do, I will also call out their friends because yeah. this is not language I'm going to tolerate in my home, in my vehicle. Yeah. And I want to be that little voice in your head. And sure, mm-hmm. I'll be the nagging voice in your head, but somebody's got to do it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we don't have to feel like all hope is lost if you know they don't act outwardly in the ways that we yes. wish they would all the time. But you're planting the seeds and it's there. Like Jen said, that little voice in their heads, on their shoulders, it's going to yep. be there. And then when they have latitude, when they have choice, when they do not feel like their pure connections are hanging in the balance, we can trust that that voice is going to guide them towards good choices. Yes. I want to go back to what you said about uh, parent fantasy. I love this idea because I hear it from a lot of moms is you know, I want him to be social. He doesn't have any friends, but he needs friends. Or a big one that I hear so often, and this is for the 13, 14 year olds, is he doesn't have any motivation. He doesn't seem to care about anything except video games. And we have this projection of he should be, you know, learning Spanish this summer and working out or whatever it is. And we translate that into, oh my gosh, he's going to be living in my basement forever because he doesn't have any motivation. Talk about motivation, Lisa. Okay. So I hear it too. And I'm so glad you sort of highlighted 13 and 14. And, you know, I think, and I read about this, it's really hard to be a middle and high school boy. And especially middle going into high school. And the reason for this is neurological developmental. They ride two years behind girls on average in terms of their arrival in puberty. This has physical ramifications. This has neurological ramifications. So obviously physically, the girls are ahead of them in terms of you know secondary sexual characteristics development. Also it means, and this is a little younger than you're pointing out, and I write about this in my book, in sixth and seventh grade, girls can outrun boys. They are stronger. They are, um, you know, can jump higher. Their their bodies are actually just stronger, bigger. And as I was pulling together all the research, you know, we we see this on the physical side and then neurologically, because girls, puberty comes with a neurological advantage, you know, they can think thoughts of boys are not yet able to think. They can see things from broad perspectives. And I started thinking, I was like, holy moly, like I should have called that section, like it sucks to be a sixth grade boy, right? I mean, it just like... The girls have got you coming and going, and there is nothing you can do at the exact moment that the culture is telling you the worst thing that could possibly happen is to get beat by a girl, right? So, oh, these guys, I feel so bad for them. You know, <laughs> Lisa, I've, I've raised four boys, and I have I have long thought it does suck to be like a sixth, seventh grade boy. And that's partly because I had 
at least one of mine was also on the small side, you know, and that's that age where some of the guys look like they're 25 and some look like they're eight. Mine looked like he was eight. Um, And yet I never put it all together the way you did. This was such an insight for me to realize that, oh my gosh, of course, this is going to be emotionally, uh, I mean, talk about a crisis tossed in the lap of, of a young boy who doesn't have the the neurological equipment and life experience to deal with all of this yet. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I, you know, the other thing I lined up with this is guess what also begins in sixth and seventh grade? Boys harassing girls, sexually harassing girls. And I was like, you know what? I think this is like a horrible and desperate attempt to maintain some self-esteem under conditions that make it very, very hard. And playing by the playbook that they've been surrounded by. Like, yes. I never put all those pieces together. And when you did, I'm like, oh. Yeah. Now there's a lot going on all at once. There's a okay. lot to unpack here. So here we have these guys. And of course, this, you know, we're talking broad strokes, right? These are bell curves, yeah. like kids are all over the map on these things, really. Um, but we have these guys who 13, 14 is still quite young for boys in a way that is actually not true in the same ways for girls. Like they are still... Um, sorting things out. They are still neurologically, in many ways, kids, like much much more than they are teenagers. And the reason I think, Janet, that, you know, 13, 14 is so critical, they are going into high school, right? So Mm -hmm. it's this horrible moment for families if you have a kid who's not on the early side of puberty, where you're like, buddy, suddenly you're creating a record that follows you and you're acting like a little kid about it. Like you don't seem to understand the implications. You don't seem to take it very seriously. And it may actually be that they neurologically cannot yet quite put all of it together. Like, that's fine, except for you're in the ninth grade. And now we have this issue with, you know, you may be making choices as a 14-year-old that 17-year-old you is going to be very unhappy about, right? So that's a tough one. So here are the, I think, beyond just sort of a gentle understanding that we need to have about like the realities, I think there are a few things that um, loving adults can do. One is to say what I just said. You know, you may not care at 14 about your grades. I have a pretty strong sense at 17, you're going to be really frustrated if you have limited the options that you will have available to you because of choices you're making right now. So try to turn it into a conflict between current kid and future kid as opposed to between you and your kid. Another thing that can really matter is giving kids stuff they truly do care about. Right. Like yes. they're into something, right? Like, you know, and really fostering if they're, you know, if they like animals, if they like engineering, if they like whatever, like going with their interests and supporting the stuff they do care about. Cause they do care about something. Like they, they do care. I will also say, I, I, I have such vivid and wonderful memories of my training. And I have a memory of being with one of my supervisors. And he was like, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. <laughs> like, I really, I really appreciate that kind of permission. Figure out what motivates your kid and use that as leverage to get them to not shoot themselves in the foot academically. Right. So if you're like, buddy, you want to play video games, you got to be getting these grades. Buddy, you want to, you know, go to that concert that I'm not that keen on? You got to get these grades. If your kid's like, the only thing I'm interested in is money, I am not above. Again, desperate times, desperate <laughs> measures. You're like, this kid is about to tank their GPA. All right, buddy, this is not an ongoing program, but for like ninth grade, so that you don't actually do yourself in, we will consider a cash reward. I mean, like, you got to do what works for your kid. When we are in the real world, I love this. You know, something else that I think comes into play here, um, and I've seen it. I have four boys. So Lisa, I don't have daughters. I I unwittingly specialize. Let's put it that way. (laughs) I think this holds true for a lot of boys. And I suspect it also holds true for girls, but perhaps more for boys, especially when you have boys that age and they are surrounded by all these cultural messages about what a guy should be. You know, there's a certain point where if they feel I cannot possibly reach that. The girls are taller than me, smarter than me, faster than me. My parents want this. I I can't do. They just stop. Mm -hmm. They stop. And I think that's where sometimes we well-meaning adults kind of interfere and feed this lack of motivation. Mm -hmm. And if we can, as you said, you know, 
facilitate whatever they really do care about. Even if the thing they really care about is something that we think is sort of like, I don't know, it's kind of dumb or stupid or boring or why would you? It can make all the difference because if you care about something, you're working towards something and all of that is transferable towards later. 100%. I could not agree more that I have seen kids go very far down a road with a hobby the parents were not into, right? Like drumming, maybe because it was super loud and annoying. Oh, right. That's like, a tough one to live with. Right. Like it's a tough one to love. But like, you know, committing and practicing and being super into it. And when I've watched a kid in that situation change interests, the muscle for practicing mm-hmm. and doing something over time and getting watching yourself get better with effort, it's a developed muscle and it, it is transferable. I love that you said that. I totally agree. And there's a place too where mom especially, but dad too, needs to back off a little bit. Just back off a little bit. You know, this might be your 13-year-old's summer and let him chill. Of course, do the things like, you know, he's got to participate in family life, but it may just be a time to just be and not have to do. Absolutely. And I think there's value in both setting expectations, but giving kids runway, Mm -hmm. you know, saying, look, it's the summer, cool your heels. Uh, When school starts, (laughs) we were thinking about... Here's, you know, your what what kind of grades do you think are reasonable for us to expect from you? Like what, you know, like I think that's a good question to ask if you're worried about a kid's motivation. And um, you know, have that conversation and be like, you know, listen, these are gonna be our expectations. And we're here to support you in any way you need, whether it's habits or, you know, whatever it is, we're we're here for it. But um, we just don't want you to we don't we don't want to spring this on you at the last minute. Right. And then parents and educators and adults holding on to the fact that. Some of this is developmental, neurological maturation. So even if you do nothing, this kid's going to grow over the next two, Mm -hmm. three years, and he will be in a different place at that point. So give grace, save some space. This is going to happen. It will come. They grow. They do. They do. And it's um, awesome to watch. Yeah. The other thing I want to make sure that we talk about is conflict, mm. which might arise out of this uh, what motivation. I know, Jen, did you ever? We have just sailed right through the teenage years, all four times, no <laughs> conflict. And I think we avoid it. I mean, I am, I will say, I am a card carrying member of conflict avoidance. You know, it's uncomfortable. And yet you talk about conflict and constructive conflict. Yeah, I think we also have to highlight here um, when we're talking about conflict and teenage boys, that can feel really scary Mm -hmm. for a lot of moms and female teachers, partly because at this point, let's say they're not 13 or 14 anymore. We may be talking about humans that are significantly bigger and stronger than us. And that can be scary for us. So laying that background. Hi, Lisa. Hi. (laughs) Um, You know, it's such an honor to be a clinician and to be given access to people's very, very private experiences. And I remember, I feel like, you know, the teenagers I care for teach me so much. Yes. And I remember something a boy taught me, and it was a big kid. This kid was 17. He was a big kid. And he, his mom was angry with him, and she was yelling at him by his report. Um, when he got home and he walked away, which made her really mad. And she was in, he was in more trouble for that. Yeah. And he was here in my office unpacking with me. And he said, I was afraid I was going to hit her. And so he was and so trying to remove himself. removed himself. And it just, my heart broke for both of them. Yeah. Right. Because I could see why the mom was like, buddy, like, what do you think you're doing? Like turning your back and walking away when I'm trying to have a conversation. And I can see this kid is like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything. I don't like, I'm going to regret, like I'm getting myself out of here. But so I've, I've obviously this has really stayed with me and it's just made me think a lot about how boys don't necessarily enjoy the fluency and talking about feelings mm. that girls do. They may not have at their fingertips, the words to say, 
what's going on. They are, you know, trained by our culture to maybe be more physical in the expression of their distress than verbal. Mm -hmm. And so it just, I think about, you know, if a, if a parent's really angry with a boy and if everything I just said feels like it's a pretty decent descriptor of the kid you're thinking about, I wonder about maneuvers that parents and adults can take to improve the likelihood of having a decent conversation. We know conversations don't always go perfectly, but as Dr. Lisa said, we can increase our odds. More on this after these messages from our sponsors. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time. Your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A dot com slash on boys. Winona, menopause care made easy. You know, and so it may be something like, you know, you need to know I'm really upset about this and I'm going to want to talk with you about this. When is a good time for us to talk? And giving the kid a chance to think it through, to find the language, not cornering them getting on their calendar, which I know we don't always feel like we want to do with teenagers. We want to, you know, have the conversation when we want, but we also want to have a successful conversation. So, you know, given a little more space is probably a good idea. There's so much wisdom right there. And I learned like when they are walking away, it's usually best to let them go. Usually best to let them go. There are many humans a lot of boys and men, but also women, who they need some time alone to process whatever. Janet's heard this many times, but one of my sons in particular, like when he got upset, he needed to go somewhere, be alone and do something physical. Mm-hmm. And after that, mm-hmm. it would settle him down and sometimes he would come back. He found that out on his own. That wasn't me going, here's a little emotional regulation yep. skill when you, you yep. know, But I needed to learn to respect that. That wasn't him being disrespectful. It was him blowing off enough steam that he could actually collect himself. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, and I really, I think another big takeaway for me in this book is um, how much we privilege verbal expression. Yeah. um, And how much we miss the boat on recognizing it's often boys will use 
more physical means, you know, they'll go out. Like I had a mom say, oh, my son, you know, his schedule changed. It's terrible because he used to come home from school and play basketball for an hour to blow off steam. And then he could focus on his homework. And I was like, there it is, right? Blowing off steam, nonverbal, effective, getting this kid's work done. Um, I had another mom of a boy tell me that um, there, it was a divorce situation, a tricky situation, and the kid was upset about something very understandably. And he came to her and he's like, is there something I can break? You know, And I was like, I think before I wrote this book, I would have been like, oh, I don't know about that. And now I'm like, fantastic, kiddo. Like you're trying to like get it out, but not break the wrong I stuff. I don't know. Like- Listeners, you can't see. I had this big <laughs> smile spread across my face because this, again, this was one of my kids independently coming up with an idea this was my youngest. He dragged home from somebody else's curb. You know, we live in a place where like sometimes people put things out free and somebody can Mm -hmm. take it. It was like a small file cabinet thing. As a mom, I'm rolling my eyes like I am trying to get rid of stuff. I do not need other people's trash coming to my house. For years, that thing lived in my backyard. And when he got mad, he would beat on it. He would kick it. He would throw it. He would hit it with a bat. And I'm like, you know what? That was a pretty good purchase. Yep. Air quotes on that because it was yep. free. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, the you know the takeaway from my book is you know if it brings relief and does no harm, it's a good coping strategy. Yes. Yes. And you know having it out with a file cabinet, Oof. if it brings relief and does no harm, man, good job, kid. Right. right. And it's not my file cabinet, not the exactly. one in my office. So <laughs> exactly. I'm good. Exactly. No. So I, I I think you know there's just this huge world. And and music also, listening to music, um, mm-hmm. listening to music that matches their mood. Like there's all of these nonverbal things that kids and I think often boys do that we just don't either recognize or value, but that I are working I want to touch well on them. one more of those before we go. Mm-hmm. Also in uh, chapter two, you mentioned that generally speaking, when it comes to managing emotional distress, boys are more likely to turn towards distraction girls discussion and one i think that's important for parents and educators to know and then again those of us that are moms have to figure out you know we're all like come on let's talk about it buddy and and how do we uh navigate that give him room for distraction right Mm -hmm. and what do we need to know lisa i think the first thing to know is that neither choice is all bad Talking about feelings brings relief, and actually, um, short-lived distractions can actually be a very effective way to get relief. We only worry at the extremes, right? We only worry about, and again, going with the gendered, you know, kind of stereotype here: girls who talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, so that it turns the corner into rumination, and they're feeling worse and worse and worse the more they talk. Like we don't want that, and we also worry about kids, and let's say boys in this, you know, example who every time they have a feeling they are hopping on a video game, they are hopping on social media, they're doing anything they can to think about something else. And that becomes the, you know, go-to all the time choice. So what we want for kids of all genders is good variety, right? That sometimes they distract and sometimes they discuss and sometimes they beat up a file cabinet and sometimes they listen to music and sometimes they, you know, go play basketball and sometimes they want to, you know, draw a picture of it, right? Like, we want to see a range of strategies for expressing emotions and strategies for taming emotions. We don't want to see talking nonstop and we don't want to see distracting all the time. So one of the things that we can all do is help all of our children to sort of expand their emotional coping toolkit. And sure, like all of us, I mean, most people have a favorite tool, whether it's in the kitchen or in the toolbox, like this is my hammer and I'm going to use it for most things just because I like how it feels. But you have the other ones. So that's what we're trying to work towards with our, and ourselves, our children and ourselves. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listeners, if you have not already picked up a copy of Lisa's book, I highly recommend it. You know that I read a ton of parenting books. This is one of the best ones that I have read in recent years. And I really believe that if you have teenagers, like this is the book that should just arrive in the mail when your kid hits maybe 10. It mm-hmm. just should. I don't know. We need to get Dolly Parton on this is what we need. Mm-hmm. So oh, she yeah. can send it out to people. 
But the book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. And I believe, were you working on um, a, a class or something based on the book as well? So yeah, so I developed a course. There's a couple of ways people can interact with the book, lots of ways. One is I could just read it. Um, another is I have a free downloadable on my website if parents want to like have a parent discussion, there's a guide there. I also have a $49 course that is designed to help you truly, truly, truly apply this in your own home. And so the course comes with a video for each chapter. This is self-paced. You can do this whatever your schedule is. It's on your time. And it also comes with a downloadable workbook that has the highlights from each chapter, the key points. It's like the Cliff's Notes for each chapter mm-hmm. and the questions that will help you actually put this to work in your own home. Like really yes. reflect very specifically on your kid, how things work for them, um, what works best, what doesn't, your own experience of being a parent. So it's all yours and um, highly specific. And so people can go to my website, which is drlisademore.com. And there's a tab that says workshop and and learn more. Um, I also have a podcast every week with my wonderful co-host, Rena Ninen called Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting, um, where we just try to answer questions that come up and do it for kids of all genders and, and cover a lot of a lot of ground, but mostly about tweens and teens. Thank you so much for the work that you are doing in the world. I know oh. this is helpful for me, many other parents, educators, and our kids. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you, Lisa. Wow, what a great conversation. As Jen said, recommend you get this book when your son is about 10. And please share this podcast with others who you think would benefit from hearing it. Teachers, other caregivers. We are the On Boys Parenting Podcast, and I am your co-host, Janet Allison of boysalive.com with Jennifer Fink of buildingboys.net. We are so glad you're here. We appreciate you, and we appreciate you supporting our sponsors too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.